what if I grew up knowing my language? What if I grew up knowing what those petroglyphs in the rock meant that I was visiting as a kid? How would my life be different and richer if I knew all that stuff? Because I spent a lot of time looking for it now. Hi there. I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee potters, get pumped for our coffee date this week because it's with phenomenal Indigenous entrepreneur and powerhouse of a woman, Michaela Jade. Michaela has represented the voice of Indigenous people at the UN. She's built an amazing technology business from a remote community that's using virtual reality and augmented reality to find a whole new way of telling the story and bringing to life Indigenous cultural assets. Plus, she's got an unbelievably powerful and raw personal story. You're going to be blown away. Here's Michaela. Michaela Jade, I'm so thrilled to welcome you to Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time to have a chat. Thanks for having me. I want to start where it all starts. What part of our great brown land do you hail from? Where's home? Um, so home for me, I'm a Capricorn woman um, of the Darug-speaking nation. So our country is around sort of George's River and Liverpool area of Sydney. Cool. I grew up near Hornsby and I spent, uh, from the time I was 18, I travelled around Australia and lived and worked in remote and rural communities for basically my entire career until a couple of years ago. Yeah, so talk to us about that because I didn't know this about you. You're actually an environmental biologist by background, right? <laughs> and you spent yes. 14 years in the national parks. So, yeah, I've been a ranger since I was 18. Um, I worked eight years in the Great Barrier Reef um, wow. and two years in the Pilbara, did a couple of years in Canberra area, Glen Innes. I've also worked um, in Kakadu for a couple of years, which is where I grew my business, and I've been back in Canberra for two years now. And so how do you find it? Like, I mean, you're out at at kind of the, well, truly in nature, in our natural environment every day. We're having these conversations swirling around with our elections and the like about climate change and what we're doing to our country and bleaching of the Barrier Reef. What's your take on on where that's at, you know, from someone who's obviously got such a connection to land and nature? Are Are you worried about the state of play right now? I've been worried about it for 20 years. And... Actually, I think our whole scientific community has been worried about it for longer than that. Like, I remember going through uni and being an environmental biologist and there were 20 of us and people were saying, you guys are idiots, there won't be any jobs when you finish, you hippies, what are you doing? Um, But there was a a handful of us who were really concerned about the changes we were seeing back then in our young lives um, from spending a lot of time in the bush growing up as kids. We could see changes happening already, which is what motivated us to become environmental scientists. And, yeah, it's just accelerated. I, like everywhere I look around the environment, you can definitely see indicators of climate change and there's positive and negative depending on, <laughs> on where you look in that. So, um, But more on my international work um, in New York, working with lots of Indigenous people from around the world, I'm, I'm face-to-face with these people that are having all these horror stories of their whole entire island disappearing and their bodies of their dead people floating up because the ocean's now going over their graveyards or communities that are they're trying to tap into traditional knowledge systems to try and grapple with climate change. So there's people in Fiji that are growing gardens in canoes. Wow. Um, yeah, so there's like people around the world are trying to reconnect with what we knew about how to manage our land and environment in a new and changing um, dynamic that we see ourselves in at the moment. So, 
Yeah, I think First Nations people have always led the charge on how to adapt to climate change. But there's a lot more barriers now. We can't just move our territories or we can't just occupy somewhere else um, where we might have been able to do that in the past. We can't do that anymore. So I kind of live in the world now of what can we do to draw on our traditional knowledge systems scientifically but also apply new technology um, solutions to you know, what does that look like when we combine um, traditional water management practices with like some really cool nanotechnology? What does that look like? Nice. That's yeah. awesome to see you pioneering in that way. And you met, you alluded to some of the international work you're doing. You've been a delegate at the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Yeah. I'd love to know a bit about like kind of what you use that platform to advocate for. What do you appreciate having the opportunity to talk about or what do you think needs to be more of the conversation that we're having? Yeah, look, it's been um, a real challenge for me to go to the permanent forum. So I've gone four times um, over four years. And my agenda is the ethical digitalization of Indigenous knowledge systems. So every year I work with up to 30 other people and we draft an intervention about what does it mean for Indigenous people to have our digital um, systems acknowledged as being as valuable as other um, systems of thinking. So there's a lot of ethics around digitising Indigenous knowledge systems, like what data has been collected on us and through us, who owns that data, where does the data live, how do our people monetize that data, how do our people control that data in other ways and how can our people destroy that data if it leads to an adverse impact in communities. So, wow. yeah, there's a lot of conversations that need to have around that because we, when we go to the permanent forum and it, it's all around uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and as you know, that was formally adopted in 2007 and smartphones weren't even in anyone's... I was thinking, this is a whole new frontier of rights, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So you know, no, no one wants to open the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People again because it took like 30 years to get all the member states to um, acknowledge that document. Um, but what we're saying and what we've been saying for the last four years is we need to have a discussion about what does it mean for all the articles that are in the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, how does technology apply to each of those articles? And what does that mean in real terms for Indigenous peoples on the ground? You know, some of the things are, are really terrifying, like what does it mean when, say, people using mobile technologies in other countries where human rights defenders are being assassinated, what does that look like in terms of tracking their movements and locating them and locating Indigenous um, knowledge systems around medicines and nutraceuticals and all that kind of stuff. So there's, a, there's this, whole, um, this whole element that's not really being discussed. And it's no. just this year where groups of people are starting to go, oh, that is money and we need to really think about what that means for our people. And you're obviously working in the technology space. I mean, one of the things I find really interesting about the, the tech world, it gets to the heart of what you're talking about there, is I worry that if we don't more consciously navigate how we engage with technology, that diversity inclusion is actually going to get worse in this next generation <laughs> versus better. I don't know if you share the same view because, you know, you're obviously advocating for a group that are all too often not in the conversation, not coding, not making the decisions, not designing the framework with which apps and, and technology are being developed with. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, totally. So we know there's a complete absence of Indigenous people and a complete absence of Indigenous women. Um, you know, there's like a handful of Indigenous women people in tech that I know of. Um, 
we just haven't had the opportunities to get into the career path. And a lot of the time when you talk to young Indigenous women, so I'm, I've been working with Microsoft and Shared Path on a program across Northern Australia to give Indigenous women opportunities to interface with things like AI and blockchain and mixed reality and stuff over the last kind of nine months. Um, what we found there is when you talk about technology, people are like, oh, tech, that has nothing to do with me. But as you know, everyone is a tech business now. So it's like trying to frame it in a different way where it's culturally relevant to people but also economically relevant so they can see themselves in that industry, not from the ones and zeros of coding, but what can I leverage technology to do for my community and for my business. And you mentioned, like, there's not many Indigenous people in technology. There's certainly not many Indigenous women. And you said when you were telling the story earlier about national parks, it was only like three years ago that you stepped into this whole new arena and decided, hey, I'm going to become a tech entrepreneur. Here I come. What was the, the catalyst for that jump? Um, there was a couple of things. So I've always been a geek at heart. So I actually studied um, computer science when I was in year seven and eight and there was no other girls in the class. So I dropped out and thought, nah, this isn't for me. It's I don't see any of people like me in this class. So I won't do it. And I really regret that because... I think I would have been really good at it. <laughs> but I grew up not knowing my Aboriginal heritage. So when I was 18, I went and worked um, with all these Indigenous communities around Northern Australia and they kept identifying me as Indigenous. And they said, oh, what's your country, girly? And I'd be like, oh, no, Australia? Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, don't worry, you'll find your country. Um, so I eventually did find who my people were and that was like a really amazing moment in my life and also really challenging because when you grow up, thinking something about yourself and it's not it's not true you kind of have to relearn and reflect on everything that you've grown up with that's, that's really a pretty hard. big reset to your identity isn't it it is it's really hard it's really, <laughs> it was a really hard time for me and actually I, I tried to take my life around that time because I, I just couldn't reconcile everything that was going on and um it was it was just it was awful but so like beautiful at the same time I can't reflecting on it now I've I feel lucky that happened and I feel lucky that I got through that stage in my life and I was able to contribute. So once I found out who my people were, I was like, well, I grew up with all these petroglyphs and cultural artefacts around me in the bush and I always visited them when I was a child and I always wanted to know who did them and what, what we were supposed to learn from these things that our ancestors left behind. And I was at the University of Canberra in 2012 and saw augmented reality for the first time. And it was really shitty AR. So it was, I held my phone over this piece of paper and it was like a picture of a doctor. And then this little video just hovered one centimetre above the page. <laughs> I was telling the story. I was like, You've come a long way. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's really cool. Anyway, I went home and had a shower and this idea popped into my head that, oh my gosh, imagine we could work with our senior traditional owners. Um, and they could come alive at cultural places and start t telling the story of the places and we wouldn't need signs. The one thing that really annoys me about being a park ranger is that we do put signs out in the estate and, you know, that's fair enough because it was the only way to communicate about stuff. But when you're putting an aluminium sign in front of a 60,000-year-old site, it's just... it's just not the right way to tell the story, right? Good point, yeah. <laughs> so... With AR, I was like, you'd be the right person at the right place at the right time telling the right story. And as I grew this idea in my mind, I was like, oh, my gosh, data's money also. So our traditional owners can be paid for knowledge sharing. So I worked on this ridiculous business model that ended up growing legs and becoming successful because for the first time I was, 
I thought, how do we do this in a way that inspires the next generation too? I don't want to be a not-for-profit. Like, not-for-profits have their space and they're really important in working with Indigenous communities. But I wanted to demonstrate that our people, that we can grow successful businesses and be culturally um, relevant and be business people. And we, can, we don't have to leave our country to make money if we start using digital technology. So I guess that's how that came about. Unreal. Yeah, it was a crazy idea and, uh, you know, that reverberated in the investor community. They're like, that's crazy. We, we I was going to say, I mean, you're developing, like, you say, this crazy business model, um, <laughs> you know, and in many ways it is an entirely new business model, thinking about even the Indigenous payments for knowledge sharing and the like. Yeah. How did you go with kind of getting support or when you started talking out loud about this idea, let alone to investors, what was the feedback? Uh, it was so hard. It, it was just no, no, no. Like uh, a lot of, there was a lot of racism that came up too. Like, really? oh, but Aboriginal people don't use technology. I was like, oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, it was really hard to say, like not to say to them to their face, like we have opposable thumbs like everybody else. Like, yeah. What do you mean <laughs> we don't use technology? <laughs> yeah, like we invented tech. Be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it was really hard and it took a long time. It was probably like two years before I um, I could get the rubber on the road and start building stuff. But in that two years when I was talking to people, I really had to sort out, okay, who are the target markets? Who Who is going to buy this? How are money going to be dispersed? How does the tax work for that? How like how do we communicate to two different audiences what the um, the value proposition is? There was a lot of thinking that had to be done, and then of course there was the thinking about intellectual property and licensing agreements for traditional owners, and how do you communicate that to peoples that English isn't their first language? Mm. So we had to go through a lot of those. Um, I guess, challenges. Mm. <laughs> it's a break on the glass ceilings to get this done to start with. Um, and had it not been for the willingness of five senior traditional owners in Kakadu, I don't think I could have done it. And they came, they came to the project with open hearts and open minds. And the, the problem that they were trying to solve is that they were really struggling to communicate cultural knowledge and language to their younger generation. And when I started sharing the work that we'd done, like I'd do, done a few demo um, apps, they really saw the potential to cross the intergenerational divide because they had the knowledge and the kids had the tech skills. And I was like, okay, let's bring these two things together and maybe we can build something really special. And we did. Um, Real. <laughs> it was interesting because I was wondering, like, you're navigating into this whole new space. How did you kind of test your thinking around how to bring it to life? And it sounds like this group of elders, were they people that you knew existing or they were people that connected with the vision and sort of all of a sudden you build a working relationship with? I connected with the vision and, in fact, two of the senior um, men came over from Arnhem Land um, to Jabiru and they said, we've heard about this project through um, family, we want in. And I was like, okay, well, you're really senior traditional men. This is what it means for culture potentially. Like we don't know what's going to happen spiritually when we do augmented reality of your cultural places. Like no one's done it before. We don't know what it's going to be like to fly the drone around your cultural places so we can do the photogrammetry image recognition mapping. Like none of this stuff's been done before. Are you okay with that? And they're like, come up. Yeah, let's try this. It's amazing. Yeah. What's it like as a young female Indigenous entrepreneur to be working with such senior male elders? Is that is that a unusual configuration? Um, I don't know because I wasn't from Kakadu country, so I'm from Sydney. So 
I didn't know. I'd just arrived in the community. I didn't know the cultural protocols for that nation of mm. people. So I kept asking them and asking family members, like, is this okay for a young Indigenous woman to be working with these senior men? And they were like, yep. If they say it's okay, it's okay. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this over the last couple of years. Is I wonder if it's because the work that we're doing is in an uncontested space culturally. So dealing with technology, um, like digital technologies and AR and um, mixed reality, I just wonder if that was a contributing factor to their decision. Mm. Um, People getting on board. Yeah, and a lot of the women were involved too, so it wasn't just the men. So they were the artists and the storytellers, but that we worked with a lot of senior women there as well um, to talk about what their aspirations were for um, translating cultural knowledge systems and... They got involved in different ways. Like we did a um, augmented reality uh, component of the app um, with Mandy Muir, um, who's a Moranbore woman, and she she teaches through the app how to um, harvest all the plants, dye them, smoke them, weave them, and everything for traditional baskets. So we started looking at it as an education resource for the community as well. Awesome. And one of the things I think is fascinating to me too is like it's hard enough doing a startup. It's hard enough building an entire new business model. You did it in a remote community too. (laughs) It's just like the degree of difficulty. Like if you you were doing a gymnastics routine, I feel like it would be multiplying you by the highest degree of difficulty possible. Um, What I'm interested, what unique challenges did you face trying to do that? But what was also the kind of unique adaptiveness or benefit that you could have never seen coming out of that? I'm so glad you asked that question because. Actually, I never see it in a deficit lens. I'm like, we were so lucky. We were tucked away in this remote community. We didn't have any, like, tech people looking over our shoulders or people saying, you can't do it that way. We tried that before and it never been done or it didn't work. Or We didn't have any of that um, external community pressure to get it right. So I guess we were allowed to fail in our own ways um, really quietly. But we also had an amazing co-working space. Like I was on 55 million hectares. Like it was <laughs> That's the best co-working space going around. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like when things weren't working right, I'm like, I'm just going to go up to Ubu and just chill and just think about this for a while. So I had the space to be able to do that. And just the conversations that happened through the project were really empowering too. Like, no, there was no pressure from the community um, you know, for a delivery date or for a project deadline or funding or, you know, all these pressures that you get with jobs in the city where it has to be done by a certain time in a certain way for a certain price and we didn't have any of those things pressuring us in the start. So I guess if that was really lucky. Some of the challenges, though, were like when I didn't know how to do something, I'd be like, how do I find the right person? So I just became a, like a professional LinkedIn stalker. Love that. That's a good one to have. <laughs> I was like, who in the best of the, who's the best in the world at photogrammetry? Okay, I'm just going to find them and reach out and see what they say. And like 80% of the time people are like, yeah, this is cool. Um, this is what you need to do next. So, yeah, it was, it was really, really cool to be able to, um, to, I guess, use the position that I was in and the location to spark people's interest because it's interesting, right? So I'm doing cutting-edge tech from a remote community. It's really interesting to people. Um, and that's how we were able to do it. It's awesome. And I love that the whole time you never saw any of that as a deficit. It was like, this is, you know, this is a point of difference in a, in a strengths-based manner as opposed to being a deficit. Yeah. Like it was frustrating. Don't get me yeah. wrong. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about that too. I mean, you, you mentioned before, um, you know, there's been some really challenging periods that you've gone through. One of the things I find fascinating, we've, we've um, spoken to founders on the podcast before who say, 
you know, the, the toll that running a startup can take is enormous. No one's there to kind of answer your questions for you. The, the hours just bleed into the early hours of the morning and beyond. How have you gone actually the self-care element of, of the entrepreneurial journey that you've been on? And what, what lessons have you got for people that are sort of struggling to manage some of their own demands and expectations at the minute? Yeah, so I did it really poorly. I'm going to be honest about that. I, I have too. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. I paid the ultimate price, I guess. You know, I mentioned I'd take my life earlier when I was 29 and I guess you know, I've had that black dog there the entire time when stress gets high and, you know, you've, you've got these ups and downs financially, you've got these ups and downs with family and trying to balance your time with the people that you love, which... I don't think entrepreneurs are always great at doing. No, because how many kids have you got? I've got two kids. Yeah, yeah. So you've got pretty big demands on your time in that regard as well. Yeah, and yeah, they're great kids, and um, they've had a fantastic lifestyle too. Like being able to live around the country and and watch their mum grow this business, I think that's inspiring. And you know, I try to rationalise it like I can pour all my time into my kids, or I can pour a lot of my time into something they can aspire to and kind of live live into. So. Yeah, I try and justify it that way. But, you know, I'm not always successful and I, ha I have recently, um, yeah, just gone through a really big period of depression and I didn't want to go back down that rabbit hole of to the point where I didn't want to be on this planet anymore. I don't want to ever go back there again. No, so I'm really active and I said, okay, I'm going to the doctor and I actually met this amazing woman, Chelsea, Chelsea Pottinger, um, from EQ Minds at, um, at an event and she just talked about self-care as something that you don't need to give yourself permission for. It should be integrated into your life. And that resonated with me for the first time because it had always been like a little luxury for me to like take some time out or just to have a weekend or to be able to go to bed early. And I'd get guilts about that when I did it. Um, then it just made sense to me. And I thought I sat in that for about six weeks and then I thought I am going to take her advice and I'm going to see an allied health professional and get to the bottom of what's causing all this because I'm a scientist, right? I believe that... You want data. <laughs> I want data. I want to know about molecules and chemicals. and. I love that you've taken a very scientific approach. It's like, okay, let's get to the bottom of it. Let's shift. I've got to do this, this, this and this. This is my new experiment and let's see what happens. Yeah, and our, like, our elders will say to us, it'll keep teaching you until you learn. So, I love that. Yeah. that the truth. Life will come around again if you don't learn this lesson this time. That's right. So yeah, I'm paying attention, don't worry. <laughs> I'm here. Um, I wanted to ask you just about the significance of, of having um, a platform in a technological age to maintain culture. Because I was listening, I was at a conference recently where we were talking about the huge risk that we're at of losing an enormous number of Indigenous languages in this generation. Um, yeah. The challenge around, like you were saying, this new generation of young Indigenous Australians, young Australians full stop, let's be honest, who, who aren't learning our history in that regard and who don't have an appreciation for culture and um, how blessed we are to be uh, occupants of, you know, the, a land that has the, the longest continuous culture in the world. I'd love to understand a little bit about just the significance for you of, of why this matters so much. Yeah, well, I know personally what it's like to not know. So I, I wake up with that every day, just thinking about what what if my family hadn't been a stolen generations family? What if I grew up knowing my language? What if I grew up knowing what those petroglyphs in the rock meant that I was visiting as a kid? Like, what? How would my life be different and richer if I knew all that stuff? Because I spent a 
a lot of time looking for it now. So yeah, did you get to the bottom of what happened on in your own journey? Yeah, yeah, I did. So my I descend from um, a woman called Lucy Lane, um, and you know, she was a really vibrant, well-known woman back in the eighteen hundreds, and she's a little bit of a troublemaker. Um, and she doesn't fall too far from the tree. Prominent woman, troublemaker, <laughs> like this. This is good. <laughs> um, yeah, and she oh, she was a character. So she um, ended up marrying this guy called William Lean, who was you know, from England. And they had this land through William, and they grew this orchard. And they used to get all the little co- the, all the convicts that escaped from the colony, and they used to hide them on this land. And wow, used to how to grow food and stuff. So they're really great at growing food, which. <laughs> It's no surprise because our people are yam farmers, so we knew how to farm the land there. Gotcha. Um, and so she had this great idea that if she could petition the government for a boat, she could take all the fruit and vegetables that they were growing down into the colony where people were suffering from scurvy and stuff because they weren't getting the right minerals and stuff into their body. Um, and so she had to go around the whole town of, like, Blacktown and Parramatta and get all the aldermen and the really important people in that community to sign this letter that said, yeah, she's Aboriginal, but she's a good person and she deserves this boat. <laughs> so, but she's a good person, honestly. Yeah, oh. yeah we still got that letter, so that was uncovered. Really, do you? Yeah, we've got the wow. letter. Wow. But she had nine kids. And wow. Yeah, so they became uh, the first Indigenous soldiers in the First World War. So Marion Smith, um, Marion Lean Smith, she's the only recorded Indigenous nurse in the First World War. Wow. And, yes, her brothers were Indigenous soldiers as well. And... So they came back from the war, um, one was wounded and they were denied hospice care. They weren't allowed to communicate with any of their battalion. Like, and so my ancestor um, started communicating with all his battalion um, members through the newspaper. So we've got all the stories um, that he wrote to them, reaching out to them, whereas it's really one-way communication. Yeah, so it's a rich family history to uncover about yourself. Oh, uh, yeah, it's really tragic then. You know, even when he died, um, his widow was like, well, he died from shrapnel wound in his lungs and she was then carrying the, um, I guess, the burden of trying to be remunerated for their work and service in the war as well after he passed away. But, you know, it sort of was dead end after dead end. Um, And so our family, um, my great-grandfather, realised that there was no benefits in identifying as Indigenous and... um, yeah, so we lost we lost contact with our tribe that way. But yeah, my great aunt is amazing, and she did a lot of research into the family history, and she uncovered all this stuff and found all the evidence. And yeah, so it's crazy. So um, when I found it, I like I've been really impacted by this personally, and I don't want other community to have to go through this stuff. Like we don't need to. If our elders will work with us, um, and we've got the young people that are interested and can help with this technology stuff. We can bring these two things together again. And I'm not saying text a silver bullet because it's not. Like we've had 80,000 years at least of translating knowledge the old way. That's still the best way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we don't do the technology thing right, we're going to lose it anyway. So um, an example of this is when in the 80s, so people, researchers came to my people and said, hey, if you put everything on VHS, it'll be there for the next generation. Um, so they did. And then no one transferred it to, like, CD, DVD, Bluetooth, Blu-ray, USB, you know, what are we up to, cloud now, there's blockchain coming. 
there's that translation piece that has to happen as well. So in all the programs that we do, we build in the technical cap capacity for people to understand you need to keep this alive through the different iterations. of mm, As we continue to evolve what the platform and the format is. Yeah, it's going to die anyway. So I, I think it's never more at risk than when people say, oh, we'll just put it onto um, the cloud and we'll be there. Cause like, Didn't you know, forget, that'll be right, done. Yeah, we can't do that. So no. yeah, there's a couple of prongs, I guess, to the solution. So there is tech solutions, which are really good, like AI and machine learning. That's amazing for language preservation. Like you need, totally. a, lot of, need a lot of hours to put in to feed the machine, but once it knows the language, then you can use it. And wouldn't it be amazing if in like five years' time all the languages that are spoken and some that are being revitalised can still be first tongue and you don't actually have to learn English to translate. Yeah. yeah, that would be amazing use of technology. Likewise with the stories, like I think a bit, something people ask me a lot about with augmented and mixed reality is what happens when people pass away because of cultural protocols and stuff. So we went down a really long journey with Terry Junkie and company and we worked out some cultural protocols for managing that and it's always um, around self-determination. So the people that we're working with and their family will decide that mm. this um, inherent bias that people tend to have about our people and our feelings towards being recorded and things after we die. So it's an individual community thing that they decide about whether they want to be kept up there and the traditional owners in Kakadu were like, don't take me down. I want to be there forever. Now I want the true story to be told. So, yeah, so there's, you know, a lot of those kind of things that are really valuable for technology um, and blockchain. Like knowing, I would give anything if I could go into a blockchain and say, um, this is our song and this is who recorded, time, date, location, stamp, and um, these are the benefits or this is who it's to be shared with. Like that would be amazing. That's amazing to think about that as, an, as the new frontier. So yeah, we're working on <laughs> Good work. Keep at it. I love that. And look, you touched on before the some of the, the experience you've had as a young Indigenous uh, female entrepreneur. I know you're passionate about getting more Indigenous women into business full stop. I know you're passionate about female entrepreneurship. Um, I'd just love to hear a little bit about some of the barriers that you faced and what, what more you believe needs to be done to see more Indigenous women and more women in general reaching the heights of what they can do in business. Yeah, I think... From my own experience, I know this is not everybody's take on things, but having that self-belief, that's really important. Like that's going to get you to open the door after it's been slammed in your face. Like you have to really believe in what you're doing, I think. And, yeah, as women, we're, we're so used to putting other people first and the needs of other, people's, other people first that I think we need to practice putting ourselves first a bit more and really believing in what we're what we're showing up for because you know you're going to spend a good time of a portion of your life that you only get once doing stuff so it has to matter and I think the second thing is um, someone told me that I would need to be as focused as a one-eyed dog in a meat factory <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite the visual I love that <laughs> always rings in my head when I've got a lot of priorities on I'm like I have to step back and go I don't think I'll be able to get that one out of my head that really sticks doesn't it it's great <laughs> what <will> the dog do <laughs> um the third thing that I found really useful is having that minimum viable product so I spent like a couple of years explaining my idea and why it was so awesome but people couldn't see it they couldn't feel it and AR is a unique technology that's really hard to explain. So, so having being able to invest in everything to get that minimum viable product so I could show people what 
what was in my head. I, that was really a breakthrough moment for me um, and things started changing there. But for women, I think to that um, network of women that we have in Australia and around the world is phenomenal. Like there's nothing that I appreciate or value more than being able to just jump on Twitter and talk to one of the women in the business network in Australia and just go, oh, this is happening or how did you face this problem or have you got any ideas about this? And the generosity of women in Australia in business is just phenomenal and I'm seeing that grow too in the Indigenous women's business world as well. Got some really good formal networks going um, for Indigenous women in business and I think, you know, I've broken through some glass ceilings and I as much as I can share that with other people that are just starting their journey. Like, mm. you know, just because I had to do the hard yards, I don't want anyone else to do that. That's dumb. So. I agree. It's like the more that we can pay it forward and make sure the next generation don't have to, to endure some of what we had to, that, like, that's our responsibility, right? It is. On the shoulders of the giants who came before us and, and paved the way to make it easier for us. Yeah, and I've been showed so much generosity by that, you know, I feel it's my obligation. I've been invested in by these women, so I have to invest in other women as well. So I do spend time, like, going to women's events and belonging to some of the great incubators like Shitio and putting my money where my mouth is in that sort of forum and being a micro-investor. Like, I can't afford to be, like, a venture capitalist yet. (laughs) But a time, don't worry. I'm putting I'm putting small amounts of money um, into other women's businesses and but I love that because it's saying it's not I'm not waiting till I'm at X point um, <laughs> it's actually I can start making that con- like that's an active choice you can make now I mean we're both micro investors in a CEO standpoint um, you know which is just one of the many options people have got to be able to make a contribution but it doesn't need to be oh I've got to wait till I'm X or I'm earning Y to yeah. be able to do this you can be out there doing it now. Exactly. The other thing that I really learned is just showing up. Like it's really hard to show up sometimes and I know sometimes when you're incapacitated you can't you physically can't get there. Sure. But as much as you can show up and show up in places that people wouldn't expect to see you. Like I spend a bit of time in agricultural community, mm-hmm. in defence community, in government communities, in like all these different communities because some of those if if everybody like put some ideas together from all those industries, it'd be like the best team ever to build something amazing. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening in agri-tech and I'm like, hmm, that's happening in agri-tech. How does that apply to culture? Or do we have any cultural insights that actually could actually improve that agri-tech? So, yeah, there's a lot of um, this cross-fertilisation of industries. I think I've, I really see the silos breaking down and I love seeing, like, the unusual suspects coming to things that Indigital's involved in. I just love that. That's really encouraging. And I, I wanted to touch on too, I feel like we're at a very interesting time when it comes to reconciliation and Indigenous affairs in Australia. I mean, wonderful to see the first Indigenous minister, like Indigenous person as Indigenous minister recently. But, you know, sharp contrast with that in the same week, the release of the Adam Goods documentary, which I think speaks to, you know, a, a very, uh, well, it's an unfortunate reflection on where our community was at, certainly in not too recent history, or not too long ago history, um, yeah. regarding how we we treated one of the giants of um, our sporting community and, and an Australian of the year for that matter as well. Yeah. Um, I, I ask this as a white Australian, what, what do I need to do a better job of understanding and how can I be a better ally? Yeah, so like I'm just a baby in this really. So <laughs> I'm still learning my culture. I can't say that I'm at the pinnacle of my own cultural journey either. But I think um, a couple of things 
allowing self-determination for Indigenous people is just the number one thing that I can recommend. Um, so it's not that we don't have ideas. It's not that we don't like doing things other ways. We've got our way that we like doing things. So maybe allow us to do it that way rather than try and fit us into this other pre-designed model or pre-designed technology platform or whatever it is. Um, maybe explore our way of doing things as well because if there's some insights to be gained, I'm sure you'll gain them by doing that rather than trying to do things for us. So I guess nothing, yeah, don't do anything to us, do it with us. <laughs> um, yeah, and... I guess getting out on country too is so important. Like if there's ever opportunities to go out on country, just do it. Like we're not going to bite you. <laughs> if you've been invited to go, definitely go. And I, I know people have some trepidation about taking up invitations to go out on country, but if we didn't want to invest the time in teaching you these things, we wouldn't ask you to come with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely taking some time to go out on country is like really amazing um and i know like it's really hard for people that are non-indigenous to like take that first step and walk into a land council and and make make contact but you know it's a great place if there's a land council in your area it's a great place to start i mean we've got iatsis in canberra that's an amazing place if more western people walked in there um with an open mind I'm, you know i'm sure we could change the world <laughs> yeah that's awesome and so practical and i appreciate that i think there's a i honestly think there is a growing community of very well-intentioned australians who who are just struggling to understand how to play a role what they can do um and and it's so helpful when you get guidance in that regard i feel like i've just got some homework that i need to go and do which is great and i appreciate you sharing that oh, yeah, no worries and, and it's funny one of the things I, I feel compelled to ask you given the richness of the wisdom of indigenous culture you mentioned sort of eighty thousand years worth of this incredible cultural knowledge that you're working on accumulating within digital is there a particular bit of wisdom that's been passed down from elders to you that, that you can share that's had a, a significant impact on the way that you live or the way that you lead Yes, there was a few things that have stuck with me. Um, so I was working, when I was at the UN, working with um, some traditional owners from Panama. One of the um, senior people there, we, we were being uh, communicating through a translator and we we're talking about technology and the opportunities and the threats. And she just said through the translator, so I'm really worried for our people because first they stole our hardware, which is the land, and now they want our software, which is our minds. Wow. Um, that's, real, that's epic. Um, that will never leave me. And then the other thing that was really important was like it, someone said to me, who's a really dear friend and um, Aboriginal person as well, and they said, every time you work with our people, you live, give a little bit of your skin. And because you're capable, you'll be asked to do a lot of things for our people. Um, but don't let people skin you alive by doing everything. So <laughs> just focus on what, what you're giving it for. That's really good advice. What great phrases, both of those. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right, one final question. I'm very mindful of your time and I'm so appreciative of everything that you've shared. Um, we love to try and move people from kind of being inspired and having ideas at coffee pods to turning into action and making sure rubber meets the road, right? And so after everything that you've shared, what is it you'd love to encourage people to go and do? What's the call to action you'd like to leave our listeners with? So personally, I'd love to see everything that we're doing in every community around Australia. And we're building some really great technology to be able to enable us to scale. But I want to hear from teachers, 
and educators around Australia about how they think what we've built can really make impact in the classroom. Teachers, if you're listening, or educators, I'd love to hear your ideas and suggestions about how we can incorporate Indigenous knowledge systems through mixed reality and technology in the classroom. Um, and the second thing is amplify Indigenous voices wherever you can in every forum that you have and like don't don't water down the message just let it be raw mm. use your platforms to to give others a platform to speak out on issues that they need like you're doing so thank you oh you're so welcome i can't thank you enough for coming on and taking the time to talk um and share everything you've done i honestly am in awe of what you're building and the aspiration you've got for reaching every single community in australia i think it's wonderful and i'm personally so inspired by your journey and your preparedness to just get out there and have a go but also to intentionally build community and inclusivity into the way that you go about doing that um, and also the candor with which you shared about your own lived experience. There are so many people, myself included, who've, who've been through similar journeys and I feel every time one of us talks about it, it makes it hopefully that little bit easier for the next person that, that finds themselves in it. So thank you for the way that you showed up and I can't wait to see and watch the journey you've got ahead. Oh, thanks, Holly. Like, it's pretty amazing hearing that from you because you're an amazing person too. I'm one of my idols, so I'm a little oh, bit... very kind, mate. I'm flattered to think that. <laughs> so thank you. Um, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.